0: Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. morning. For those of you who are new, uh, my name is Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Crosspoint. And we're just so glad that you could be with us this morning. Uh, we are in a teaching series called The King's Tale. And we're looking at the life of Jesus uh, through the lens of the good Dr. Luke, through his gospel, the gospel of Luke. And uh, we've been tracking along through this story for the last uh, number of weeks. Uh, actually, a couple of years, really. Uh, took a couple of breaks along the way. But we keep coming back to it because it's so good, the story of Jesus. Um, today, uh, we're going to look at a story. Parable that Jesus teaches, and it's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, starting at verse 4. So, I'm going to get you to pull out your sermon notes if you got those in the bulletins, or uh, if you have a Bible, digital, paper, um, memorized, whatever. Uh, let's pull that out. And uh, I'm just going to start today by reading this parable that Jesus taught. And it starts at Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And here's what he said. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path and was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants, and still other seed Fell on good soil, and it came up and it yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. Now, when he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, his disciples asked him what the parable was meant, and he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God, and those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. And the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, They are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, that you are for us, not against us. We thank you that your desire is to change us from the inside out. And thank you that you've given this word to us today that uh, we might become more like you and that our lives might be full of abundance. We pray our hearts would be open and pray your spirit would speak. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Hey, how many of you have ever heard the term bumper crop before? Anyone, ever, anyone? anyone heard that term before, a bumper crop? Um, it's, uh, I'm kind of familiar with that. I married a farmer's daughter, so um, I have heard the term before from Saskatchewan, represent. Um, the term is uh, used to describe a crop, a harvest crop, that is so huge, so huge, that you simply cannot contain it. Uh, so your barns, your bins, your silos, whatever you're hoarding your grain in, uh, they're just simply full so much that they're just overflowing. Uh, you've got more grain than you absolutely know what to do with. Uh, but I've always wondered, why is it called a bumper crop? I mean, what does it have to do with bumpers, you know? Like, a, there's like bumper of a car. Where do, what does the term come from? So, of course, I had to Google it. I'm big on etymology. So I had to look it up. And and it turns out the, the term comes from, uh, like, 200 years ago. It's a very old term. And, and back then, a bumper was a glass of wine that was filled to the max, to the brim, and that was overflowing. Uh, So, you know, they would ask for a bumper of wine, and they'd get a full glass. Well, it turns out the the, the word began to evolve, and it started to be used to describe other things. So Charles Dickens, at one point, called a full house, a full theater, a bumper, and eventually it found its way to agriculture, and that's where the term bumper crop comes from. You can file that under Useless Trivia 101. You're very welcome. Well, today we're talking uh, about a parable that Jesus taught. And he's talking about how to experience a bumper crop of faith. He's describing how, how we can have a faith that is flourishing. And in the, in the parable, you will have noticed that he talks about a, a faith uh, producing a crop that is 100 times greater than what was sown. Imagine that. Imagine taking one seed of an apple, planting it, and suddenly having a hundred apples. That is a bumper crop. So here's the question this morning. Is What if you could have a bumper crop faith? What if you could experience a transformed life that flourishes? Not one that's just surviving, right? But one that is ultimately is, is thriving. That's what we're going to be exploring today. I want to talk to you today about spiritual flourishing. And to get there, I want to look at three questions that are just kind of bubbling to the surface, that are, that are emerging from the parable that we've just read. And the three questions are simply this. Number one, what is flourishing? Number two, what hinders flourishing? And number three, what ultimately enables flourishing? And it turns out it's all in this parable. So here's the first question. What is flourishing? What do I mean by that? Well, flourishing essentially means to to live a life, to have a life that is producing much fruit. It means to have a bumper crop harvest spirituality. You see, the real evidence, the real evidence of the health and vitality of any plant ultimately is in the fruit that it produces. So if if it produces grain or berries, apples or pomegranates, it doesn't matter what it is. If a plant is not bearing fruit, a plant is not flourishing. Because here's the thing is, is if a plant doesn't produce fruit, ultimately a plant cannot reproduce itself. Plants were created to reproduce, it's, it's hardwired into their nature, particularly fruit bearing plants. And here's the thing is, is that when Moses sent the spies into the promised land, you maybe remember that story uh, from the book of Numbers. What did he ask the, the spies to bring back as evidence that the land that they were about to take over was a good land? He asked them to bring back fruit, the only thing, fruit. And it's because the quality of the fruit in the land would demonstrate the quality of the land itself. Fruit is the real evidence of life and vitality. And here's the thing is we were made to produce fruit. We were designed by God to flourish. Now, for for the believer in Christ, for a follower of Jesus, fruit represents a life that is transformed by the Holy Spirit so that we become more and more like Jesus. That's ultimately the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to know Jesus and ultimately to, to become like him. Now, Paul uses this term. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. You may be familiar with Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, okay, so when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we ask him to change us, what happens is that the spirit of God transforms us from the inside out. And the result of that is a bumper crop of fruit that ultimately looks like Jesus, that has the virtues and the characteristics of Jesus himself. We are flourishing then in the life of Christ. And, and I think it's important to point out uh, something here, is, is that the fruit of our lives doesn't exist for, our, for us alone. Uh, Fruit ultimately is meant to feed other people, right? Fruit is not made for the tree itself. It's made for others. It's meant to nourish others. And you'll notice that as you read through the list in Galatians chapter 5, that the fruit is there, is other-centered. It is not self-centered. So the fruit of goodness means that you are good to others. The fruit of gentleness means you are gentle with others. Ultimately, fruit is intended to be other-centered. And so a life that flourishes, a life that is full of fruit, ultimately impacts other people. It it nurtures others. It it helps others. So flourishing is not merely... God doesn't cause us to flourish merely for our own self-transformation. God causes us to flourish for the transformation of our relationships, of our communities, of our culture. God gives us a bumper crop of faith... For the sake of the world. So did you know this morning. That God has a vision. For flourishing. In your life. Did you know that? And and it's not just an individualistic type of flourishing. Rather it's a communal flourishing. It's relational. God not only wants to transform you. God wants to transform the world through you. But the starting point. Always is with you. So that's flourishing. Here's the second question this morning. The second question is. What uh, ultimate... Oh, no, you know, I'm not going to jump in the second question. I got ahead of myself. I have to talk about two things that are in the text. In today's parable, Jesus talked about two components in flourishing. These are very, very important. First of all, he talked about the seed, which is the Word of God. And second of all, he talked about the soil, which is the human heart. And and I I need to very quickly touch on these this morning. First of all, let's talk about the seed. Let's talk about the seed, which is the Word of God. Uh, As followers of Jesus, we understand, for us... That the Bible is the Word of God. It is God's inspired, special revelation for us. As we look through the Bible, as we read the Bible and understand it, it reveals His will, it reveals His purposes, it reveals His character. And God ultimately uses His Word to transform us. Here, here's what the author of Hebrews says about the Word of God. He says, For the Word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit, bone, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the word of God, the word of God, the seed is alive. It is active. It is life-giving. So it's a living word that ultimately gives life. It penetrates. It judges. It reveals. It brings hope. Ultimately, the word of God changes us and it transforms us from the inside out. It's very powerful. And Jesus said that in order for the Word of God ultimately to do its work of transformation, it needs to get planted inside each and every one of us. And the place where it gets planted is inside of the human heart. Well, what is the human heart? Ultimately, the human heart is just the center of a person's being. It's the inner you. It's the place of your intellect, of your emotions, of your will. All things in your life flow to your heart and from your heart. Your heart is who you are at the center. And Jesus said this, that we need to pay attention to the condition of the soil. Ultimately today, Jesus is asking us this question. He's asking us this question is, how is your heart doing? Do you have a heart condition? See, the issue in the story isn't with the word of God. The word of God is complete. It's perfect. Okay. It's unchanging. The issue in the story ultimately is with the condition of our hearts. And what Jesus is saying is that the condition of our hearts can help us towards flourishing or it can hinder us away from flourishing. And so this brings us to the second question, which is what hinders flourishing? And you'll notice from the story, Jesus talks about three types of soil, three conditions of the heart that ultimately uh, hinder or prohibit uh, flourishing in our lives. The first condition that he talks about is spiritual attack. Jesus said that there are, there are spiritual forces at work in the world that can sometimes hinder our flourishing. And in specifically here, he talks about the devil uh, who can come along and snatch up the word of God from our hearts. Now, the scripture, the Bible actually has a lot to say about this spiritual world. It has a lot to say about this spiritual world that exists behind our very physical world. And it's a world where there are intelligent spiritual forces who exist and operate, some of them good, some of them very malevolent. And what you learn as you go through Scripture, we don't have a lot of time to fully unpack this, but you learn that the, the devil or Satan is revealed as a spiritual being, and, and ultimately what he wants to do is he wants to frustrate God's plans, and he wants to turn people away from God, from worshiping God, and towards worshiping himself. And, and his, his forms of attack uh, include deception, uh, temptation, misdirection, and spiritual blindness. And what you also learn is, is that The devil is is finite. He's not infinite like God. But he does have a whole host of other spiritual beings, which Scripture calls demons, who uh, work with him towards these ultimate ends. What seems to be clear from this story that Jesus tells, from this parable, is that the devil will do whatever he can to keep the word of God from taking root in our hearts. That the, the devil will attempt to snatch up the seed, And when a person first hears the gospel or begins to hear the gospel, he somehow prevents them from believing it. He would actually, at the end of the day, he doesn't want them to believe it. Because when a person believes the gospel, when they believe the word of God, that seed ultimately takes root in their heart. And when that seed takes root in a person's heart, new life begins. A spiritual life begins when a person believes the gospel. They cross over from death to life. They cross over from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They uh, they have a new beginning as a child of God. And he will do whatever he possibly can to keep that seed from taking root. And the question is, why would he do that? Why is that so important to him? And the reason why, ultimately, is because when a person crosses over from death to life, they are playing on the opposing team. They suddenly, at one point they were an ally, and now they are a rival. And he will do whatever he can to keep people from moving from one place to another. And so the devil's goal is simply to keep the word of God from taking root in people's lives. And I I know that this is, we don't often think about this in the West. Okay, we, ours world is a very natural world, a very physical world, a world of very tangible, practical, solid things that we like to measure, and those are, for us is the real world. And so the idea of a spiritual world, a world behind our world, I know that this is very difficult for us to, to get our heads around in, in many ways. Um, and I'm, I'm going to spend a lot more time on this in a couple of weeks here. So I, I said that last week, I'm saying it this week. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to unpack this a lot more in detail, okay? But it's enough to say that Jesus himself believed it, and taught about it. There is a world behind our world, and the devil's goal is simply to keep the word from taking root in people's hearts. So The Apostle Paul said the same thing. You read it in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We'll just pull it up here real quick. Um, here's what Paul said. Uh, he said, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we can take away from this, friends, is that, that every day we are immersed in a spiritual battle whether we see it or not whether we believe it or not there is a spiritual battle that is happening behind the scenes and within that battle the goal ultimately is to keep the word of god from taking root in our hearts so that's one of the that's first thing that can hinder our spirituality here's the second trials and testing trials and testing keep in mind jesus is speaking to a group of people here who lived in a very hot arid desert region, okay? So in that environment, in order for plants to survive, roots, uh, plants, their roots needed to go down really, really deep. Rain came very seldom, and so plants had to draw moisture from deep within the ground. And so if plants were planted on shallow ground, they just wouldn't survive. When they began to feel the heat, they would wither up and die. Similarly, what Jesus is saying here is that some people's faith won't survive the heat. He's saying at first they, they experience it with, wor- uh, with great joy, right? They begin the journey as enthusiastic beginners. They're, they're, they're quick starters. They're early adopters. But once the heat gets turned up, he says, some people abandon their faith. And not long into their spiritual journey, they experience testing and trials. Listen, if, if you're here today and, and you're an old believer in Christ or you're a new believer in Christ, I need to say to you, in this life, you will experience many tests and many trials for your faith. This is, this is part of the journey. We're not going to sell you at Crosspoint a gospel that says, everything's just going to be great. You know, a Pollyannish view of Christianity is like, just accept Jesus into your heart, and life is going to be perfect until the end of your life. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. In this life, you will experience testing and trials. And somewhere along the way, people will discover that there is a cost to following Jesus. And sometimes it's a difficult, and sometimes it's a narrow road. It might be a road that's faced with persecution or or, or opposition. Or maybe life just hits you sideways. You experience sickness or you lose your job or or someone you dearly, dearly love stabs you in the back. This is the reality of life. And for some, Jesus said, this testing ultimately causes them to fall away. And it's interesting, you know, the word that Jesus uses here literally means to pull away. That this person is removing themselves from God, and from the faith community relationally. They're resigning from their faith. So it's not that they tripped over and they fell into, right. so fall away it can make it seem like it's accidental. It's not accidental. It's, it's a very slow but very deliberate walking away from faith and walking away from God. And that's the thing that can hinder us, is that trials and testing can scorch a person's faith if the word of God has not taken root. Here's the third thing. Life's pursuits. Life's pursuits. And this hindrance is is really interesting because it's it's often very subtle. Uh, It's much more subtle, as a matter of fact. And and because of this, it's often overplayed. It's often, uh, uh, sorry, downplayed. It's often overlooked. And so because of that, I want to just touch on this a little bit. I want to press on this a little bit more this morning. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on it. Jesus said that there are some people who hear the word They actually even believe the word. And so what happens is the seed goes inside. It actually takes root. It begins to grow. But the problem is is that the soil in which their seed is planted is contaminated. There are other seeds in the soil, and the other seeds are weeds. And so as the plant grows up, other weed plants grow up alongside of it, and they begin to choke out this plant. And in the end, uh, they don't produce fruit. They don't mature. So they're alive. They're just kind of existing, but they're not flourishing. They do not ultimately mature. Uh, when Karen and I, we just purchased a house uh, a couple of months ago, and, and when we first moved into the house, we noticed that there were strawberry plants in the back corner of our lot. And I thought, strawberries? I've never had strawberries in my garden. This is wonderful. I can't wait to eat some strawberries. Well, what we discovered is that they weren't flourishing. They weren't producing flowers. They weren't producing berries. And what we realized is that planted between each strawberry plant was a chive plant. Now, chive plants, if you know anything about chives, chives are like the bullies of the garden, okay? They just, like, take over. They like to throttle other plants. They like to choke them out, right? They like to steal their lunch money, right? And so my strawberry plants were, you know, kind of sad and mopey, and they weren't very happy, and they weren't producing much. And so Karen one day went out in the backyard with a shovel. She dug up all the chives. Karen cannot abide bullies, okay? (laughs) So she pulled them all out. Threw them in the garbage. And I tell you what, within two months, my strawberries were smiling. Okay? They started producing flowers. And then just, just about a week ago, berries, or maybe two weeks ago, berries started to emerge and they started to ripen. It's a happy ending, isn't it? Until of course the snow came in and absolutely murdered my plants, okay? <laughs> What is it that chokes out the Word of God in our lives? Jesus lists three things. Worries, riches, and pleasures. I think everyone here has experienced worry to some degree. How many of you have ever been consumed by worry? How many of you have ever experienced like deep, paralyzing anxiety? I mean, how many of you know that, that worry can sometimes choke out your faith okay but jesus also says that riches can strangle your faith now to be clear jesus isn't necessarily against having riches okay there are many men and women in the bible who had significant wealth jacob job david solomon just to name a few what what jesus has in mind here is when you make riches the pursuit of your life you see, see, the Bible has a lot to say about the danger of pursuing money. It says that the love of money can be the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus himself taught that the greatest rival for your heart's affection in this life will be money. And the problem isn't that God doesn't love the rich. The problem is that the rich don't always love God because they have too much else in their lives to love. And what Jesus is saying here is, is that when you make life an endless pursuit of more... There is a danger. There is a danger, ultimately, that it can choke out your faith, and you do not mature, and you do not flourish. I I read recently uh, about Marcus Person. Uh, He is the 36-year-old founder of Minecraft. Anyone play Minecraft in the house? Okay. No one over 50? Thank goodness. Okay. Um, He sold the company at 36 years of age. He sold it for 2 $2.5 $2.5 billion. Imagine that, having $2.5 billion in your 30s. Um, he, uh, he ended up um, buying a $70 million mansion, okay? Uh, he spent his days living the dream. He had lavish parties. He had uh, high-end vacations. He traveled the world and became fast friends with famous celebrities. I mean, he was ultimately living the life. And you, when you read his story, you think, oh, man, this guy was happy. He was satisfied. He had everything he was fulfilled. But here's what Business Insider reported that person uh, uh, said. He sent out two reflections on Twitter uh, at the height of his party life. And here's what he said. The first thing he said is, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. And then he tweeted not long later. He says, hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I have never felt more isolated. This, this just is an example for us of the anti-climax of wealth and success, which our culture so highly prizes. When you, when you give your whole life to these pursuits, you end up discovering a giant bottomless void at the center of your soul. And listen, he's not alone. I, I, I could list off dozens and dozens and dozens of people in that type of situation who have said precisely the same thing. All of your pursuits in life ultimately magnify your emotional, relational, and spiritual poverty. That's what they demonstrate. John Steinbeck, the famous American novelist, he won Pulitzer Prize. He won a Nobel Prize for literature. Okay, here's what he had to say about the downside of making riches and pleasure your life's pursuit. He says, a strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us, save only plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much. And I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. Money can choke out our faith. But you know what? Pleasure can also choke out our faith. Now, pleasure, again, pleasure is not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus drank wine. Jesus went to parties. Jesus ate really good food and had spent time with very close friends. Jesus experienced pleasure. But here's the thing is Jesus was not defined By pleasure. His life wasn't dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure. And when our when our lives are defined by chasing pleasure, we are in danger of making pleasure an ultimate thing. And when this happens, pleasure has the potential of becoming an idol. An idol is a good thing that becomes a god thing, and in the end, it becomes a bad thing. And what I've discovered is that pleasures, of course, can include more than just food or drink. Um, let me let me just get very practical here, and let's talk about our culture and the culture we're living in today. Um, in, our, in our culture, one of the ways that we pursue pleasure is through epic experiences, okay? Many people have a, a bucket list of things they want to see or they want to do before they die. Of course, as believers in Christ, death is just a veil, and we get to live forever on a new heaven and a new earth, and we can have those experiences anyway, just saying. But anyway, many people have a bucket list of things that they want to experience before they die. And and we're constantly chasing after instagram-worthy experiences. This is the culture we're in, right? We're led to believe that if we're not having these epic experiences that somehow we are less valuable, we are less worthless, we have less significance in life. And then when our friends post pictures of their ec- epic experience, while we're sitting at home on the couch eating Doritos, okay, we go through a bout of depression, right? We experience a little bit of FOMO, right? A little bit of fear of missing out, right? Because we're not having these epic experiences. And there are many scholars who would say that we are living in an age of what is known as the experience economy. There's actually a great book called The Experience Economy. I encourage you to read it. It's just brilliant. So when we're, in our culture, when, when we are going shopping, okay, we are not simply buying commodities. We're not simply buying goods and services. In our culture, when we go shopping, ultimately what we are paying for now are experiences. Smart, successful companies know that they are not just selling you a product. They are selling you an experience. So when you go to Starbucks and you buy a coffee, you are not just buying an overpriced cup of coffee, okay? You are buying... An experience when you go to a nail salon and get your nails done not that I've ever done that but if you ever go to a nail salon and get your nails done you're not just paying for paint on your fingertips you are paying for the salon experience most of the stores the, in the mini malls that used to sell commodities no longer sell commodities anymore go and look at them see what they're offering ultimately at the end of the day what they are offering us are experiences we're buying experiences We are an experience-driven culture, and I wish I could dive into this more. Maybe I'll do a series on it at some point, but one of the greatest values we have in our culture today is experiencing life. Did you notice that in the alpha video at the beginning that we watched today? It was all about experience. Experience is the new commodity. It's the new pleasure that everyone just has to have. Now, When I consider this, okay, when I consider this, I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering, how much does chasing after experiences in my life ultimately choke out the word of God and keep it from thriving? Because there's a danger, Jesus says, in the pursuit of pleasure. It can hinder our faith. All right, here's the final question. Ultimately then, if that's what hinders flourishing, what is it that enables flourishing? And Jesus said that the best soil for flourishing is a good and noble heart. The idea here is is that it's a heart that's prepared to receive the word of God. It's It's a heart that ultimately wants to do the right thing. It's a virtuous heart, an honest heart, a fair heart. This is the kind of heart, Jesus says, that ultimately will lead toward flourishing. But here's the question, what does that heart look like? Fortunately, Jesus gives us the answer within the text. He says this heart, this good and noble heart, essentially has three practices. Number one, it hears. Number two, it retains. And number three, it perseveres. Let me talk about these very quickly. First of all, let's talk about the hearing heart. Hearing ultimately means your heart, a good and noble heart, receives the word. Here's the thing. If the seed doesn't get planted in our hearts, the seed of the Word of God will never grow. The heart must first receive the Word of God. It's the starting point. It's the starting point for our faith journey. And this is why we need to have, as believers in Christ, a regular, consistent diet of the Word of God. This is why we come here. This is why we come here on Sunday mornings. We come to worship together and ultimately to receive the Word of God into our hearts that it might grow and our lives might flourish. This is why we encourage you as as, as cross pointers to practice the spiritual disciplines, to get into the Word yourself, to read it, to live in the Word and allow it to live in you ultimately. This is why we encourage you to to be in home groups, to be in community with other people who are going to share the Word together, who are going to encourage one another in the Word. The Word has to be planted in our hearts. We have to hear it. A good, noble heart is one that hears the Word of God. And remember, What we've learned already is that the devil will do whatever he can to keep the word of God out of our hearts. But as it turns out, one of the key weapons that we have in spiritual warfare warfare, is the word of God. You read the the key passage on spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6. You get to verse 17, and what it says is one of the weapons we have for defending against the enemy is the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. The word of God is a weapon against the enemy and his assaults. But we have to hear the word. We have to receive it. That's the starting point. But second, Jesus also says we have to retain it. We need to retain it. It's not enough to simply hear the word. A good and noble heart will will hold on to it. And what's in view in here, when Jesus talks about retaining, is more than knowledge retention. Okay, So you can... You can read uh, or recite John 3.16 in seven different languages backwards, or you might know the meaning of obscure theological terms like homologumina, okay? Uh, But it's not about having an academic understanding of doctrine. It's not about having an academic understanding of Scripture. That's not what's in mind here. What's in view here is keeping the Word inside of you. It's embracing it. It's holding on to it. It's something that you value and that you hold closely, and it also carries this idea of living in the Word and allowing the Word of God to live in you. So to, in the Jewish mind, to, to know the Word, to really understand the Word, meant that you lived it out. You put it into practice. This is why James chapter 1, verse 22 says this. It says, do not merely listen to the Word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So to flourish, you need to retain the Word. And what that means is to take the Word, to hold on to it, and to live it out. To Ultimately, to Apply it. We need to retain the word. And here's the final thing of what a good and noble heart does. Ultimately, a good and noble heart perseveres in the word. See, it's not just how you begin your journey that matters, (coughs) ultimately, it's how you finish the journey. And a good and noble heart perseveres in the word. And and what you hear in the story, of course, is that there are some people who abandon their faith when they're facing trials and testing. But the thing about a noble heart is a noble heart perseveres. It keeps on keeping on. You see, some people, they go through the fire and they become bitter. But there are other people who go through the fire and they become better. Producing any crop requires patience. Anybody who's ever had to grow something knows this to be true. Growing takes time. In fact, there are are many fruit trees that take several years before you can harvest them. If you read in Leviticus in the Mosaic Law, uh, there's actually some very specific instructions given to the Israelites when they planted trees. They said that if you're going to plant a tree, uh, you are not allowed to harvest from the tree in the first three years. The fruit of that tree, the law says, will be unclean. You can't touch it. And then in the fourth year, the, the harvest of that tree, you're not to touch that either because that's to be dedicated to the Lord. You've you, you got to give it to the Lord. Ultimately, Israelites weren't even allowed to harvest from their fruit trees until the fifth year. The fifth year is when they could ultimately reap the abundance of that tree. The fruit harvest required perseverance. And I wonder this morning if some of you are struggling with perseverance. Maybe you felt the heat of the sun. Trials, testing, and... You find that your faith is withering. Or maybe you're feeling choked out by just wrong pursuits, misguided choices, just, just dumb decisions. And that's you today. Can I encourage you today? Don't give up. Don't quit. But begin again. Start over. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and begin again. You know, the Bible says that, that God's mercies are new every morning. And greater is his faithfulness stretching to the skies. And, and so that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God is for you. He wants you to flourish. And he's willing to come alongside of you if you'll just today begin again. There's a man named Tarman Carlyle. And he wrote this very famous book, The History of the French Revolution. He wrote it by hand in days where there were no computers, there were no typewriters, and he wrote it in the 1830s. And after three years of writing this book, he ended up with 1,500 pages handwritten in his manuscript. But he wasn't finished there. He needed to have it proofread and edited, so he gave it to his friend, John Stuart Mills, Um, who was a very famous philosopher and and, and great thinker. He says, John Stuart, would you take my manuscript and would you edit it for me? So John Stuart Mills took his manuscript, this 1,500-page handwritten manuscript, took it home, sat it in a basket beside him, sat down by the fire, and night by night as he sat by the fire, he would start to edit this book of his friend, Thomas Carlyle. Well, as it turned out, uh, J.S. Mills went away on vacation, and he left the basket beside his chair, And while he was away, the maid who was in the house thought that it was just kindling for the fire. And by the time he came back from vacation, the entire manuscript had been completely scorched, had been completely burned out. So he went back to his friend, and he said to him, told him the story. And Thomas Carlyle, when he found out about this, he just sunk into a deep depression. He drew the blinds in his house. He sat in darkness And he refused to eat. He sat in darkness for three weeks. And finally, one day, he opened up the blinds of his house. And he looked out his window. And he saw across the street a man there who was repairing a wall. It was an old wall that had fallen down in front of a church. And so every day, he started putting this wall back together, brick by brick by brick. And Thomas Carlyle did nothing. He would do nothing else. All he would do every day was just sit, stare out his window, and watched this man repairing the wall brick by brick until finally at the end of the uh, several weeks this wall was completed and Thomas Carlyle thought to himself if he can rebuild that wall brick by brick i think i can rebuild my manuscript page by page and so he began again and page by page he went through it and he wrote it and it was even better and he finished the history of the French Revolution within two years. And it's, it, today is a classic of historical literature. It's a brilliant work. Today, you can begin again. And God invites each and every one of us into a journey of perseverance where we allow the word of God to take root deep in our hearts, to deepen our faith, and to transform us brick by brick by brick. Every single day. Friends, if you want your life to flourish, if you want to experience a life of abundance, a bumper crop faith, it requires daily just doing it, brick by brick by brick. And Jesus invites each and every one of us into a life of perseverance to persevere. And maybe for you today, it just means you gotta begin again. And that's okay, begin again. His mercies are new every morning. Let me end with this question for each and every one of us today. Who do you want to be in five years? What kind of a person do you want to be? What kind of a legacy do you want to leave behind? Fruit trees can't be touched for five years. If you were to set the clock for your life five years into the future, what kind of a life do you want? And Jesus offers for each and every one of us a life that flourishes a bumper crop faith and that's his promise to us can we pray together let's pray today lord our hearts just celebrate the word of god which is true that jesus you came and you gave your life for as a ransom for everybody to rescue us from our brokenness, our sin, our stupidity, our misguided notions. We thank you for the grace that's available. That is the word of God to us. And we celebrate, Jesus, that you did not remain in the grave, but you rose from the dead and you defeated death, hell, the grave, and that we can enter into this abundant life. And so, God, for everyone who's here today, we pray that that abundant life, that resurrected life would rise up within us, that you would take the word of God, you would ignite it, and you would change us from the inside out. We thank you that you are faithful and you'll do it. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast.